uh, or if you have your Bible app up and ready, whatever. Also, this I just wanted to mention is we are right now starting to plan for our next baptism service here at Faith Community. And um, we're going to take a little time to plan it, and I'll tell you why once you tell me whether you're interested or not, or are you ready for baptism, or you want to know more about it, or you want to uh, talk to me uh, about your children being baptized, or whatever. So let's start the conversation. Speak to me at your earliest convenience, and um, talk about this great step of following the Lord in believers' baptism. So that's the first announcement. There will be others. But we want you to start um, planning and letting us know. You say, well, I'd like to know more about it. I'm not sure I'm ready yet. I'm not sure I even understand it all. I'm not sure this or that or something else. And you've just maybe taken your first step of faith, whatever it might be. Uh, it's still not too early to talk about it. And we'd be glad to talk. And we don't put any um, extra expectations on anybody. So uh, let's start that conversation. Speak to me as soon as you can. We... Uh, we're in a series, uh, this is the second in the, uh, in, the, in the series, and we're rolling back the curtain of history a bit, matter of fact, uh, 1,400 years before Christ, so that's more than just a little bit, and we read this about those times. Over in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6, we, which is the principal theme of the whole book, it reads, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Or another version reads, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So I want you to come back with me all the way back in time, and let's meet the judges. Again, we're introduced to Deborah, or Deborah, however you choose to pronounce it. And we're going to look at some of them, not all of the judges, but uh, hopefully it'll give you enough introduction and enough hunger uh, for, uh, for knowing what this book is about, and we'll repeat that theme over and over so you can catch it. Today, another prominent leader who was a contemporary of Deborah, or of Deborah, and a message that I am entitling, He Dropped the Ball. How many have ever heard that expression? Okay, how many have ever done it? <laughs> he dropped the ball. And just out of curiosity, how many of you know where that, that expression comes from, where it originated? No? Okay. You figure it out. When you figure it out, I'll continue. No. So let me see again how many have heard the expression or used it. Man, I dropped the ball on that one. I think we use it a lot. I've heard people use it oftentimes. What it really means when we use it in our context today is it describes someone, maybe ourselves, who failed to follow through on an assignment, or maybe we failed to make a certain deadline. Ever been there? Or maybe we failed to achieve a certain goal in life, and we didn't quite get there. But the origin of the phrase can be traced back to the year 1941. So we're talking 75 years ago. The fourth game of the 1941 World Series. As you all remember, the Brooklyn Dodgers were playing the New York Yankees. And the Yankees were up two games to one in the best of seven series. 
looked like the Dodgers at home were going to win this game, game four, and tie the series at two all. Top of the ninth inning, Brooklyn is leading four to three. You can picture it. Yankees were at bat, nobody on base, base is clear, two out, that's important to note. And it was a full count, three balls, two strikes on Tommy Henrik. So we're all waiting for that big payoff pitch. First, the wind-up. And they didn't take a week and a half to pitch each pitch then, like they do now. Batters had to be ready, because pitchers were pitching when they were ready to pitch. So the wind-up, and the pitch, and a swing, and a miss. That should have been the end of the game and tied the series at two games all. But the Dodger catcher, Mickey Owen, dropped the ball on the third strike. And as you know, if that happens and first base is not occupied, the batter can head for first. If he makes it safely, he's on first base. The ball just tipped off the heel of Mickey Owen's glove. And Tommy Henrik made it to first base safely before Owen could even retrieve the ball. It went downhill for the Dodgers from there. The Yankees went on to win the game. They went on to win the series. All because Mickey Owen... He... There's some interesting stuff here, and I'll come back to it much later, but Mickey Owen set a record that very season, the season of 1941, for the most errorless fielding chances by a catcher. He had 508 perfect catches, to be exact. By the way, he was also an all-star for four consecutive years, and he was the first player to pinch hit a home run in an all-star game. So he's quite a ball player. But despite his outstanding career in baseball, Mickey Owen has always been remembered as the guy who... Oh, don't be so sad. (laughs) We knew the Yankees were going to win anyway, but he was the guy who... There you go. Now, the Bible is full of people who drop the ball. I'm going to expand that a little bit. Our world is full of people who have dropped the ball. And some of these people, speaking of the Bible context here, some of these people are found, (laughs) they're kind of lined up here in the book of Judges. Uh, Matter of fact, in our next uh, message in this series, hopefully, we're going to discover the story of Gideon, who was in and of himself a bit of a coward, yet God used him to do some unusual things and to restore faith and freedom to a nation. It was an unbelievable story, proving that God uses imperfect people. Aren't you glad that God uses imperfect people? When Pastor Todd gets up here and says, if you have a heart to serve, there is always a place to serve at Faith Community. We don't know what it might be. You may not know what it it will be, but God does. And God is looking for imperfect people. Oh, I could never be good enough to do this, or I could never be good enough to do that, or I could never be good enough to do something else. God is looking for you. And God uses, thank God, Imperfect people. 
Now, another imperfect human specimen in the book of Judges is a guy named Barak. His story is told in Judges chapter 4. You've heard his name before because we spent a lot of time on it a couple of weeks ago as we opened this series and talked about Deborah. Now, you say, is he one of the judges? I believe he is. I believe he's one of 13 judges. Some great Bible scholars say that there are 12 judges. Am I going to split hairs or part company over whether there were 12 judges or 13? If someone says, I think there really were 17, I'll buy that. Whatever you say. He was either a judge, a military commander, a commander slash judge, a co-judge with Deborah. I don't know. You just make your choice. I just like looking at this guy, and I want to show you something really specific. It's itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny. I mean, you may not have even seen it. I've read this through several, several, several times, and it never caught my eye before, and that's why I was so anxious to include him in my short list. Now, let's remember... Let's go back for the history lesson, because this period in the history of Israel involved repeated cycles, cycles of rejection and reprimand and repentance and redemption. And it went on and on and on and on, rejection and reprimand and repentance and redemption. Now, if you're note-taking, you need to get those four things in your notes. The people of Israel rejected God in favor of false deities of every variety. God would then reprimand his people by allowing some foreign tribe or people to conquer uh, uh, or to harass them or to enslave them in some punitive way. And then the Israelis would eventually repent and God would appoint a new judge. I often use the analogy of a clock. And since we just changed our clocks, everybody has seen a clock face probably in the last 12, 14 hours. And, and, and I said at the top is, is when they were, they were redeemed and things were going great and they were thanking God and they had gotten back to real genuine worship. And then as the, the hand started down, they were starting to reject and they were starting to run things for themselves and look after their own lives and call their own shots. And as you get down to six o'clock, they're pretty much as low as they can go. And then they realize they need help and they don't know where to go for the help. So they call out to God. And then from there up to the nine o'clock, they're starting now to repent, get their hearts right, get their lives straightened out. And from there on the rest of the way up, they're in that redemption mode and so on. If you think of a clock like that, or you think of that cycle, um, you can, you can remember these four things a whole lot better. Rejection, reprimand, repentance, and redemption. And the whole thing here repeats itself over and over and over again. Now, the cycle not only repeats itself with every generation, about 13 times in the great historical book of Judges, but also kept repeating itself and is still repeating itself even to this day in which we live. Now, again, here in the fourth chapter of Judges, we find... The, a new cycle beginning, and it says right there in verse 1, the Bible in chapter 4 says, the children of Israel again, underscore that word, did evil, in, in other words, we've been here before, in other words, the only thing we learn from our mistakes is that we don't learn anything from our mistakes, the only thing we learn from our history is we don't learn anything from history, and so the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, that was a self-governed city-state in the land of Canaan. The commander of Jabin's armed forces was a, a man named Sisera. He led a massive militia, included 900 iron chariots. That would probably be 
one of the most fortified types of, of uh, militaries anywhere, either in that region or maybe even in the known world. 900 iron chariots. Together, King Jabin and Sisera cruelly oppressed the Israelites and enjoyed doing it for some 20 years. Finally, when they couldn't stand it any longer, verse 3 says of chapter 4, Israel cried to the Lord for help. So God called a heroine and a prophetess named Deborah to rescue his people. And she was a shero. She was, she was a true leader for her people. Just brought to the kingdom for such a time as this, if you will. So Deborah, in turn, called on a mighty warrior. His name is Barak. And he gets a lot of abuse from Bible teachers and preachers. And, and oh, he was weak and he needed the woman to help him, you know, even stand up on his feet and so on. There's more to this story than that, so stay with me. One day, Deborah sends Barak a message, and here's what the message said, and you can read it in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. Uh, Barak, the Lord God of Israel has commanded you to mobilize 10,000 men. Take them from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them to Mount Tabor to fight against King Jabin's mighty army with all of those iron chariots, and that army is under General Sisera's command. The Lord says, I will draw them, the Lord says, I will draw them or entice them down to the Kishon River, and you, Barak, will defeat them there. That kind of brings us to Barak's fateful fumble, I call it. Because the first thing I see in this very brief biography, you have to really look into this to, to, to get some insight into this man and what makes him tick. The first thing we see that Barak did is he defied the word of God. In reply to Deborah's message from God, look at verse 8. Barak says, I will go if you will go with me. And that's where a lot of people think, oh, well, he just didn't, he, he just didn't have the strength or the courage, and he wasn't much of a warrior, and he couldn't do anything without the woman at his side and so on. And he, he goes on to say, but if you won't go with me, I won't go. And we looked at these verses a few weeks ago, and we opened this series, and we saw that there's a lot more to what you see to what, than what you just read as you just do a superficial uh, treatment of these verses. Now, this is the big blunder. A lot of people really remember Barak for this because Deborah tells him that the Lord has given a message and you're going to go down into battle and he's going to lead that opposing army down into the, to the Kichon River and you're going to take them out there and you're going to win the battle, etc., etc. And he said, it sounds like a plan. Yes, I'll go if you go with me. If you don't, I'm not going. That deal's off. In verse 9... The great leader, Deborah, said something very interesting. She said, of in essence, she said, of course I'll go with you. But you have to understand one thing. That with an attitude like you've got right now, there will be no glory in this victory for you. Because God is going to use an unknown woman and her hand to take care of General Sisera. 
Now, okay, I, I hope I haven't confused you, and so let's try to comprehend what's going on right now. Barak received his orders from God's appointed leader, and very important to note, not only was she a judge, she was also uh, uh, termed a prophet or prophetess. The mobilization of Israel's army and the defeat of Sisera was a command of God. That we have established. Deborah begins her sentence saying, The Lord God of Israel has commanded you, yet Barak defied the will of God. He was only willing to obey a direct command from God. Now, he would go if he could do it on his own terms. Man, oh man, listen, listen, we need to listen to this. This is an ancient history I'm teaching now. This is as modern as it gets. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted to control the agenda. He wanted to call the shots. But it just doesn't work that way with God. Maybe, maybe, maybe you found that out in your own life. He wanted to be in charge. Let's all say that together, kind of get it in there and just, just lodge it nice and tightly. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted to call the shots. He wanted to call the shots. It just doesn't work that way with God. And it just doesn't work that way with God. Now, we could say those things over and over, and as we repeat them, we could take out the pronoun he, and we could put in another pronoun, what? I. Hello? Oh, Pastor Bob, I'll do God, yeah, I'll do God's will. I'm okay with that. But I, 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 I'm, I'm kind of busy, and I got this going on, and I want to do this, and I don't want to go there, and I have to do something else, so I want to do that on my own terms. It just doesn't work that way with God. If you can't remember anything else from this morning, could you please remember that and just keep saying it over and over and over in your mind and in your heart. It just doesn't work that way with God. It doesn't work. Now, I'm going to speak for myself, not for you, but I can sympathize with Barak. He's being called into a very, very dangerous and uncertain task. It's only natural to want to have some sense of control over the situation. Yes? No. Yes? You get called into some kind of situation and you haven't got a clue what's around the next corner. You don't know how it's going to play out. You don't know how it's going to finish. You don't know if you're going to win or lose or draw or not even be in the contest. And you're thinking this uh, over, and it's going through your mind 24-7. And no matter what you do, eat, sleep, drink, play, work, it's still going through your head, and it never stops. And the bottom line is you're saying to yourself, "Uh, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do, but uh, but I've, 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 I've got to do it on my own terms. I've got to be in charge of the situation. And that's kind of the way you and I, and I'll take you out of it, I reason things. 
I see two of you nodding. So there's about three of us that reason that way, and the rest of you got a lot to learn today, or we want to be like you either way. You've, we've got people sitting in this room this morning who have some huge decisions before them. They have some, some gigantic things coming up this week. Maybe in a few days, maybe at the end of the week, maybe by the weekend. And they've got to either make a decision or, or, or make a move or sit and wait to see what the, what the decisions are going to be that will affect them. And I, my heart is with you because you've got to be at some time saying, man, I wish I knew what was going to happen. Man, I wish I knew how this was going to play out. Man, I wish I knew where I was going to be in my life in a week or a month from now so that I could start planning accordingly, but I'm not in charge. That's right, you aren't. I'm glad you realize that. He's in charge, and until you give him the keys to the mansion, he, you're not going to know what's going on, and you're going to be terribly confused as you go through whatever it is you're going through. Many of us spend years struggling to get control of our lives when all God wants us to do is let go. Is that true? Yeah, but Bob, this is, I mean, this is big. This is something that's been going on for years. This doesn't just impact me, but it impacts my family, it impacts my future, it impacts a lot of things. I've invested a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort. And I don't think I can just say, well, God, here it is, whatever. And so we keep struggling for the control of our lives. That's what it's about when all God wants us to do is simply let go. And when I say simply, I'm not oversimplifying. I'm not pretending that that's always an easy choice because it isn't. Let's read that statement together. Many of us spend years struggling to get control of our lives when all God wants us to do So letting go really spells surrender. And surrender means willingly submitting my will to the will of God. And it's one of the signs of genuine faith, and it's also one of the most difficult things to do in life. I wouldn't stand here and tell you, oh, just do this, this, and this. Bang, it's all done, you're all better, everything's over, you'll never even think of it again. I wish I could tell you that. But we just said together that some of us spend years struggling over these issues until we get to that point of surrender. Some of you are still struggling over something. Maybe it could have been resolved a year ago, two years ago, ten years ago, I don't know. And the reason is because in that particular area, you haven't surrendered. You haven't willingly submitted your will to the will of God. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I know how that feels. Because it means letting go of your life and allowing God to do the controlling. Remember the story Chuck Swindoll said, told many years ago, and you've all heard it, and you all know some part of this story at least or where it's going. But he talked about this young college student who wanted to stay focused on God during his college years. 
And when school became stressful or his peers were trying to pressure him to conform, he, he would look up at the ledge in his, in his dormitory room where he, put, he had placed six um, uh, uh, three-by-five note cards. That's what I'm trying to say. And each card had one large hand-printed letter on it, and it spelled, the sixth card spelled L-E-T-G-O-D. And one day a gust of wind wafted through that small uh, dormitory room, blew the last note card away. Later on he looked up, and the message said L-E-T-G-O. Let go and let God. That young man learned a vital truth that day. And a lot of us have used that little phrase, let go and let God. But what does it mean? In order for God to truly take hold of our lives, we must first let go of those lives. See, and I think some people teach this, but some Christians go on their merry way believing, hey, look, I'm a lot more committed and submitted and surrendered today than I was a year ago, and I probably was only 50% committed at that time, maybe not even that. I bet you I'm 75 or 80. I'm doing good, aren't I? No, I'm getting there. A little bit of time, Bob. I'm going to make it. hate to burst your bubble, but you're, you're, you're not going to make it that way. In order for God to truly take hold of your life, you must first let go of that life. All too often, we want to be in charge. That's why some people struggle so with spiritual growth. They just can't seem to grow. They can't get beyond a certain point. They can't. They've come up to a certain standard. They're cruising now. Everything seems to be fine and they just can't seem to go to the next level because they're content with where they are and they want to be in charge. And if they have to go to the next level, it might be uncomfortable. They might be called to do something that they're not really ready for. They don't know what the, uh, how, how many unknowns are going to be out in the next future, be it near or distant. And they just, they just want to be in charge. Now, all too often, you and I want to be in charge of our own lives. And here's something else that I find uh, uh, rather amusing, but, but it's true. Stay with me. We act so much we act that, like that, that we want to be in charge, that we actually fool ourselves into believing sometimes that we really are in charge of our lives. And if you're ever at that point where he's like, you know, God, take your hands off me. I can handle this. I'm in charge. Nobody is in charge of their own lives. Nobody can tell what's going to happen a minute from now, an hour from now, a day out, a week, a year. Nobody. Boast not yourself of tomorrow. You don't know, thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. But we get to this point and, and we're just fooling ourselves. That's how we get into what I call comfortable believism. We get to that point where I guess things are going okay. I'm going to do the same this week I did last week. And we'll just keep going. And maybe next week I'll do the same thing again. And we'll just keep doing it over and over and over. Oh, yeah, I'll come to church in the meantime because 
I've got to tip my hat to God, and he's got to know I'm there. He's keeping track. And we really fool ourselves into believing that there's some part of our lives that we're in charge of. Now, let me just tell you this. Even if God's not in charge, you don't think he's fully in charge and you've fully given your life to him, can I just wipe all that off the slate? He's still in charge. See, we want to be the captain of our own fate. It's March Madness. I love the post-game interviews. Hey, we won. Now we control our own destiny. That's a stupid statement, honestly. Of course, it would have to be athletes that do it, but it just, it just saddens me for people to think that way, to even have their minds set. I don't care if it's athletics or what it is, that they control anything. You don't control your own destiny. You're not the captain of your own soul. You're not the commander of the future. We say, in essence, thy will be done, but what we really believe is my will be done. Genuine faith means learning to let go and letting God take charge. And only when we are fully surrendered to God can we experience the fullness of God's life and what God wants for us in life. So Barak's power play revealed a lack of faith and trust in God. Yes, I, I, I accept that. It resulted in the loss of glory and honor for him. He wasn't, he wasn't going to do it God's way at first, so he's not going to get the glory for it. And he's not going to get the, the accolades for winning that great battle. Rather than being given the honor of personally defeating his enemy, he's not going to bring down the last enemy or the big general. Sisera would be killed by a civilian woman who'd never even lifted a sword before. She was good with a tent peg there. But there is, there is so much more to Barak's story. Now, although, now, now, let's get off the negative and let's leave the poor man alone. He's recorded in the Bible rather prominently, and you and I haven't quite made it yet. So let's not get too tough on him. huh? Because even though he defied the will of God, we next find that he depended, and this is what's often left out of the story when people teach it, he depended on the word of God. He made a monumental error. He dropped the ball. Not only could his team have won the World Series, but he could have been the hero. He could have been the star of the series. But consider what it was that Barack demanded and his motive for it. While it's true he overstepped his bounds, and it's true he kind of went against his leadership by demanding Deborah accompany him, it was also a sign of his dependence on the Word of God. You see, the Bible tells us that Deborah was a prophet or prophetess, however you want to translate it, verse 4. And that means she received direct divine revelation from God. God spoke through the prophet. God spoke through Deborah. And, and here's the point I wanted to make. Took a while getting there. Barak didn't want to make a move without her presence. Listen, because she was the very instrument or the oracle of God. And I know when you read that first time, you caught that right off. But I've had to read that 20 times before it even started to register. And then had to read some stuff about it before it started to make sense to me. Now keep in mind, folks, the nation of Israel had abandoned God's word. They were ignoring his commands. 
That's how they wound up in the mess they were in in the first place. And I want to bring this down to personal living because some of you can get can get your escape route by saying, oh, this is the Old Testament and doesn't apply to me and there's nothing here for today's living and so on. You're not listening with both ears and your heart. Listen closely, fellow pilgrim. If you do likewise in your life, I mean, do like the, the nation of Israel and abandon God's word for your life and ignore God's commands for your life, I can stand here this morning and guarantee something. Todd talks about guaranteeing. You will wind up in a pitiful mess of your life, not unlike the people of Barak and Deborah's day. Oh, Bob, don't worry about me. I seem to be doing okay. I'm coasting along here pretty good. I'm, 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 you know, I'm feeling okay. I know God's there if I need him. And, you know, if I get in a pinch, I'll pray. My friend, If you only pray when you're in trouble, you're in trouble. There's one thing that I will say for Barak that I I truly believe. I believe that he understood the situation his people were in, and he didn't want to keep making the same mistakes. So he listened to what God said through Deborah, and he obeyed what God commanded. And the Bible tells us that he, in fact, that he he would engage this great general, Sisera, including the 900 uh, iron chariots. He would go to battle against him, just as God ordered, and he utterly defeated them, just as Deborah said he would. Now, I don't believe they're still, personally, Believe any way you want to. I don't believe there are still modern-day prophets and prophetesses like in the Old Testament type in the world today. Some do, and I don't have a problem if they believe that. I don't. I don't believe that I need that because God gives me the same direct divine revelation to me, to you, to all individuals as he once did in times past, but he does it differently. He doesn't do it through another prophet or a prophetess or someone else telling me what God's saying for me. I believe God has given us his word. I believe the Bible is his word. And I believe it's the complete and full revelation of the plan and the word of God to all mankind. Without apology. And contained within the thin leather-bound pages, that leather doesn't last long, does it? Contained within those pages is the very word of God. This is not a religious book. This is a relationship book. This is a living document. Delivered by the Holy Spirit. This is the theonustus, the the God-breathed word of the living God. That's why we need to love it. That's why we need to live it. That's why we need to learn it. That's why we need to let it guide us. And that's why we need to go to it for healing, for strength, for courage, for wisdom, and anything else we need. 
I am not depending on someone else saying, I got a word from the Lord and I need to share it with you because this is for you. They can share it. But I'm going to take the word of God and I'm going to listen to the author of this book, the precious Holy Spirit of God, and I'm going to let him teach me and I'm going to let him illumine the thoughts and the words and the intents of this book. And I'm going to get for myself the plan of God for me. Here's what the Bible says. Thy word, God, is a lamp under my feet. You say, why do we need a lamp? Because we're often walking in darkness and we're walking today in a very dark world. And it's a light under my path. It'll show me where to go from here. Psalm 119, 105. This is not an anthology of legends and lies and myth. The Bible is the living, active Word of God. But just mentally accepting it as a fact, that's not enough. Genuine faith depends on and desires the Word of God, just as Barak did. Now, let's not not knock him down. Let's lift him up. He wasn't moving forward without the representative of God, actually the Word of God going with him. Have a Bible that collects dust on your bookshelf? That's not enough. You need to get into the Word. The Word of God needs to get into you. You need to love the Word of God. You need to be comfortable with the Word of God. Oh, there's so much in there. I don't understand it. When I read it, I don't. Just open it and ask the Holy Spirit who wrote it to guide you and to teach you. But then don't give up in despair. Stay in it. Keep going back. Keep learning. And, and, and I just love those conversations when people say, well, you know, I read it in the Bible, and B, I hadn't noticed, and, and, and boy, God's teaching me some. Hmm. A few years ago, I read of some parents who were sending their oldest son off to college, and it was his freshman year at the, at the big university, and before he left, they gave him a Bible. And uh, they said, you know, this, this, will, this will be a great help in your life, if you read it. <laughs> Be a great help if, 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 you, if you stay in it. Be a great help if, if you'll just do what it says. Well, he hadn't been to college very long, and he started uh, mailing notes back to his parents. The traditional note from college asking for money. You've been there too, huh? And they'd write back and tell him, well, sometimes they'd send a little bit of money, but usually not, and tell them to read the Bible. And they say, now, if you go to such and such a chapter, such and such a verse, uh, really help you through this time. He'd re- he said he was reading the Bible, uh, but mom, dad, I-, I still need money. So he came home on Christmas break in that freshman year. His parents told him, got talking about the Bible. They said, well, we know you haven't been reading it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been reading it. How can you say that? Well, the father started leafing through the Bible. And he held it up like that, and 66 $20 bills flitted to the floor. <laughs> One for each book of the Bible. Now, some of you are digging on right. Don't go through your Bible. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't stash anything in there this morning, okay? <laughs> And, you know, your, your body needs this steady, balanced diet. And you, you, Let me tell you something. 
more than your body needs a steady physical diet, your soul needs a steady diet of the word of the living God. Our spirits cannot survive without the word of God. And God has set down for us a banquet beyond compare with 31,173 nutrient-rich verses. And he encourages us to come to the feast. Don't starve yourself. Don't starve yourself. I tell you, the Bible is more than a history book. It's more than some set of religious rules that you've you got to keep or you'll be in big, big trouble. It's God's revelation of who he is. It's bigger than what we think. It's his plan for redemption and restoration. It's his plan for the universe. People look out on the world today and they, they look at the, the uh, geopolitical scene and they look at what's happening in this country and that region and someone else. And, and there's some countries uh, are great at, at uh, uh, rattling sabers and, they're, and they're, they're, they're threatening this and they're going to do that. And, they're gonna, and, you know, we get caught up sometimes in those conversations, almost like we believe somebody on this earth has control over the universe. Let me tell you, nobody does. And of course, the absolute best for me, and I, and I don't want to get into a debate here, I just want to open up this can of worms to get you squirming, but the best of all to me is the whole climate change. The whole, this place is going to blow up, it's going to self-destruct, there's no chance, we're all, and it's all man's fault, and we're going to just, one day we're going to poof and be gone. And it took scientists to prove that, although many of the scientists are now disproving it and saying that was all a scam to start with. So it comes down to this, whether you believe what I just said or not. Who's in control? Does he control the universe? Does he have a plan for the universe or doesn't he? See, that's why we need the Word of God. You don't hear too many of those people saying, yeah, well, according to Genesis chapter 13, and for... No. no. So it's his plan for us. It's his plan for you. Wow. It's his plan for me. Man, I got so thirsty when I first came to the Lord and got interested in really, really, really what he had to say to me, I couldn't put this book down. I read the whole thing in a month. And I read it, I don't know how many more times in the, in the, in the, in the ensuing year. I just kept going through and through, and I can show you some of those old Bibles that I had. I just you, Some pages, you can't even read them. They're so marked up. They're so You just open them like that, and pages fall out. Get hungry for the Word of God. Get into it and watch how it changes your life. It changes your attitude. It changes everything about you. Oh, I'm fine with the way I am now. No, you don't want to control it. You want him to control it. It's a story of God's relationship with mankind. It's a story of God's matchless love, his amazing love, his, his matchless grace. Grace, grace. Say that word a hundred times and see if you're, if, look in the mirror and see if you're not smiling. Grace, grace, grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Barak would not 
think to leave home without the oracle of God, and neither should we. Finally, in addition to depending on the word of God, he also delighted, I want to get to this, in the worship of God. So he wasn't all a bad man, was he? No, I don't think he was a bad man at all. Because genuine faith leads to heartfelt worship. The Bible, over in chapter 5 now, I said we'd be in 4 and 5. So if we slip into chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, that's, it's called the Song of Deborah, but it really should be the Song of Deborah and Barak because the first verse says that they sang it together. It says they both sang. And it was a song of praise. Listen to the lyrics of the song they sang. Israel's leaders took charge, and the people gladly followed. Praise the Lord. Listen, you kings. Pay attention, you mighty rulers, for I will sing to the Lord. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, And actually, the song goes on for 28 more verses uh, after that. But the theme of the song is all summed up in just three little words. Praise the Lord. So Deborah and Barak worshipped and praised God because they knew that only he could give them the victory and only he was worthy of their praise. In fact, the word worship is actually a derivative of a Latin term that means worthship or worthiness in our vocabulary, in the words of the angels of heaven who sang so loud, I can't wait to hear that chorus in heaven It's recorded for us in Revelation 5.12. It says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing or praise. I'd say the first thousand years there, we're just going to be singing that chorus over and over and over and over. Hey, look, I have people say, I don't, as long as I make it to heaven, I don't care if I'm an errand boy. I'll just go do, you go do your errands. I'm going to be in the choir for the first thousand years. Then I'll take a breath and we'll start another millennium. Amen? Amen. You're excited about that, I can tell. <laughs> if Revelation 5.12 doesn't wait, uh, light your wood, then you know what? Yeah. Very wet. Okay. He was a man of worship. He was a man of the word. He was a man that understood what God expected. And I don't think we should just write him off or leave him out of the list. Back in the late 1990s, not so long ago, but it's getting to be more years ago than we want to think of, there was a rather large church in Watford, England called Soul Survivor. Experience a period of apathy in their worship, struggling to find music or meaning in their musical expression, I should say. So the pastor, uh, Mike Pilavacci, felt that they had uh, allowed the altar to become more of a stage. And their worship was more performance than praise. So he made a very bold decision to get rid of the speakers and subwoofers and all that stuff. And there'd be no more guitars, no more drums, no more keyboards. And for at least a while, a period of time, the church would have to learn to sing God's praises without all the modern innovations, all the contemporary Christian music equipment. And as a result, they began to encounter God in a fresh way. And reality set in. That worship leader of that great church was Matt Redman. And out of that experience, he wrote one of the most beloved songs of our generation. Matt said this, there was a dynamic that was missing. 
So the pastor did a pretty brave thing. He decided to get rid of the sound system and get rid of the band for a season. So we gathered together in that big crowd with just our voices. His point was that we'd lost our way in worship and the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away. Reminding his church family to be producers, I love this, in worship, not just consumers. Pastor Mike asked when you, and I'm going to ask you the same question this morning. When you come through those doors on a Sunday morning, what are you bringing for your offering, not talking about money here, to God? Matt says the question, like here, just now, led to some pretty embarrassing silence. But he said eventually people broke into a cappella songs, heartfelt prayer. They started encountering God in a fresh way. The Spirit of God was very evident in that place. Before long, we reintroduced the musicians and the sound system a bit at a time. And as we gained that new perspective that worship is all about Jesus, and he commands a response in the very depths of our souls, no matter what the circumstance and setting. And the heart of worship simply describes what occurred. See, when the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you've required. God, you, you search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're, you're, you're looking into my heart. So I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. The heart of authentic worship, as Matt Redman learned, is Jesus. Both Barak and Deborah knew that true worship was worship of the living God. And so they lifted their voices in praise to the only one true God who was worthy of praise. You know what we ought to do? We ought to follow their footsteps. We ought to take Judges chapter 5 seriously and personally and celebrate our God, celebrate our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's delight in the worship of God. Let's come back to the heart of worship. And while I'm kind of bringing this back to where I started, if speaking worship, the worship team and band members would like to come now and take their place, I'd appreciate it. But don't interrupt the flow here because I want to bring the people back to just exactly where I started. So, folks, if you're still seated, would you please listen very carefully as I wrap up? Because here's what I want to say. In the end, Barak proved to be both a man of faith and a hero to his people. How many remember Mickey Owen? Ever heard the name? Oh. Well, Mickey Owen 
What, Rick? Drop the ball. Let me tell you something else, my friend. Listen to this. That great all-star baseball catcher. He was never admitted to the Baseball Hall of Fame. On the other hand, can, you, can I just have your attention for a few more seconds? Barack dropped the ball. Yet he was elected to faith's Hall of Fame. Go to Hebrews 11, verse 32. His name is engraved there alongside the great home run hitters like Moses and Abraham and Joseph. What's the difference, you ask? God, I think, is a lot more forgiving than most baseball fans. And he loves to use imperfect people just like you and just like me. Thank you, dear Jesus. Thank you. So now let's stop and reflect for just a moment. And let's come in to your personal circle. And let's ask a question or two. Maybe you've dropped the ball in your life. Yeah, you say, Bob, I've dropped the ball. I've run back to the screen many times trying to retrieve the ball, and I still keep dropping the ball. God specializes in people like us. Aren't you glad? You say, I've made more than my fair share of mistakes. And some would be so honest as to say, you know, there have been times I've even resisted God in my life. I know he's more powerful. There's no question about that. I know he controls the universe. I know he knows who I am and where I am and what I'm doing. But yeah, I've resisted him. Let me just tell you that the same grace that God extended to Barak, he offers to us. And all he requires is that we receive it in faith. Let me just say this final thing. It's available to all, and it's available to each of us. See, if I just said it's available to all, you could walk out of here and say, well, I know all, but he didn't. No, 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 no. It's universal and personal. That's what I love about the grace of God. And if you're ready, if you're ready to pick up the ball, if you're ready to move on in this game of life, I want to invite you to make that decision for Christ today. Firmly and finally, don't keep playing around with it in your mind. Don't play with that kind of stuff. Get it settled in your heart today. Even while we stand and sing, in just a moment we're going to stand and sing Matt Redmond's great song. We're going to take in and drink in the words of that song and the meaning and the background. I know it'll stick with you. But some of you are here today and you're in the throes of a great decision. The decision to accept Christ as your personal Savior. And I urge you and invite you to do it today. And then listen to this. I also urge you to seal it by sharing that wonderful decision with me before you leave this place today. God bless you. Thank you for listening. I love you. And I know, I know God has something great in store for you.